welcome once again to the Winning Edge podcast. My name's Mark Haywood, and today we've got a, a pretty interesting topic. Um, the state of our racetracks and, and track bias and the associated topics is very often a, a big issue in Australian racing, and, and some race days, depending on how the track's playing, it can completely dominate conversation among jockeys and media and punters. So today we're going to try to go straight to the source. Uh, we're going to have a chat to Jason Kerr, who's the general manager of racetracks for the Melbourne Racing Club, and that also makes him chief track manager of one of Australia's predominant tracks at, at Caulfield. Uh, he's been in the game and, and working with racetracks for going on about 20 years, I think, so you can rest assured that if there's something to be known about racetracks, he knows it. So we're going to have a chat to him, hopefully cut through a lot of the noise and get some facts around what causes racetracks to play the way that they do. So my guest today is Jason Kerr, who's General Manager of Racecourses at the Melbourne Racing Club. Thanks for joining us, Jason. No problem, Mark. Good to be here. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, so just for those who are maybe interstate or, or not as aware, the, the Melbourne Racing Club so manages and operates racecourses so at Caulfield, uh, Soundown as well as Mornington. So what, what's your role at the actual um, club? Uh, yeah, general manager of racecourses, Mark, which obviously covers the three. Uh, so I directly uh, manage Caulfield on a day-to-day basis, and then uh, Sandown's uh, run by managed by Tim Bailey and uh, Mornington by Michael Suey. So I work in conjunction with them, and uh, yeah, between the three of us, uh, you know, we sort of look after the three tracks. But uh, I'm based at Caulfield, and there's a full uh, full accountability for uh, how things go at Caulfield. Yeah, right, and just just quickly, your own background, always been in in racing or in grass, if you like? Yeah, very much in racing. Uh, grandfather was a bookie, uh, Dad was a bookie, and um, I was sort of, yeah, always, always going to get into racing, just loved it from uh, as long as I can remember, and, uh, you know, the horses in particular, and just went through school, finished year 12, had a year off, and, uh, yeah, just sort of pulled out some feelers to see what I was sort of doing in the... Uh, Racing industry work-wise, I was uh, six foot three, so jockey was never going to be a be an option. And uh, yeah, got a job with the, what was then Victoria Amateur Turf Club in the, uh, about 1990, and uh, sort of branched off into the racecourse management side of things pretty quickly. I sort of liked the outdoors, and I liked the sort of the, the grass horticultural side of it, and certainly the, you know obviously with some involvement with the horses on on, the, on this side of things. So. It really appealed to me. I went back to school, did an associate diploma in sports turf science, part-time. It took a few years. And then, uh, yeah, just sort of came up through the ranks uh, with the Melbourne Racing Club. Uh, so I was a trainee race course manager for probably five or six years uh, under sort of Terry Watson and John Green. And then uh, got the appointment at Sandown as assistant race course manager and progressed from there. And, uh, yeah, been a race course manager at Caulfield for, I think I'm coming up to my 15th Caulfield Cup. Great. So obviously, a hell of a lot of experience in uh, in terms of race tracks. So I guess the biggest thing for our listeners who are, are punters is um, how firm or soft a, a track plays. Just in terms of a track by nature, what what contributes most to I guess how a track plays is it, is it the profile of the soil, and does that vary by by different race tracks? Yeah, obviously all, all tracks are slightly different profiles. I think there's been a little bit of a uh, you know, the, the, the four metro tracks, tracks have got a similar sort of profile nowadays. They used to be very different, but basically it's a sandy loam um, soil, you know, pretty free draining with 
with obviously a, a selected sort of grass on top, but uh, there are more uh, you know provincial tracks, and further you get out of metro area, the I guess the less the quality that these tracks are built on. A lot of them are just natural sort of paddocks and you know very little drainage in them, but. Uh, most of the most of the good country tracks in the metros have got a fairly uh, complex drainage system in them. Um, you know, some you know really high quality uh, soil is used as a profile, and then obviously a grass on top of that. But uh, that's the, that's the top of the tree, and then the further you get down uh, down the line, you know, the, the quality sort of slackens off. But yeah, you know, that's, that's some of these tracks only race two or three times a year, and you know for what they actually serve you know they are they are a good a good surface the, the metro tracks race 30 odd times a year and obviously the the expectations on them are uh, a lot a lot higher so hence the uh, you know the the investment goes into into them when uh, building them yeah i guess just for just for the layman like like me and maybe some of the listeners what's the actual uh i guess the profile of the layers that are, are under the surface in the a track like Caulfield, as opposed to just your normal, you know, suburban park or something. Um, what's yeah, actually right, yeah. underneath there at Caulfield? Yeah, the profile is about 300 mil, 350 mil uh, deep, which is a bit over a foot in the old, and it it's built on a clay base. So basically, you start from the bottom and work up, and it's a uh, import uh, clay if it's not already there naturally, and that's sort of rolled and flattened and you get your levels of your track and your contours and your cambers and that on that clay layer and it's sort of built built to the shape of the track and the design of the track pretty much uh, exactly and then you build up in layers from there. Um, what goes into the base is the is the drainage system. So um, you know there's a herringbone system or there's a you know, lateral drains and generally they're spaced about every every two and a half or three meters to pick up obviously all water that runs through the profile and, and into the base. So these actual tracks are designed so the water will run through through the grass, through the soil profile, and then it'll hit this hard pan uh, compacted clay layer and then it'll run sideways on that layer and drop into drop into the drainage lines and then obviously get uh, you know removed off off to the side of the track. So on top of your your clay base you've got your drains in the clay base and then you've got 300 mil of uh, a particular soil profile, which is you know obviously different to every track, um, and that that's uh, determined by I guess it's probably whoever's constructing. I've got a fair bit of say into that how quickly how quickly they want it to drain. Um, the size of the soil particles are obviously um, quite important as well. Whether they're, they're big particles, it's free of draining. The shape of them is quite important as well because if they're, if they're sharp angled type soil particles, they lock in quite tight together. Um, and that's, you know, obviously it's got some benefits, but it's also got some issues as well. And then obviously you've got a, uh, a grass layer on top of that. So it's, um, it's built in layers and they're yeah, generally about 350 mil thick with, a, with, with drainage in the base. Yeah, right. Does the actual grass, um, or the type of grass vary across tracks or even within the, within one track or is it all pretty standard? Yeah, generally tracks will have, um, you know, constructed Specifically, constructed tracks will have uh, two types of grass. Certainly in Melbourne, they do. I mean, Melbourne's uh, what we call a cool season climate. Uh, Sydney and uh, Queensland are a, a warm season climate. Um, and that, the difference there is that Sydney and Queensland can grow kaikuya grass, which is only sort of viable in the warm in the warmer months. They can grow that all year round, so that's a naturally sort of quite a uh, 
um, you know, fast-growing grass. It's, uh, you know, it's tough, it's hardy, it's drought-resistant. So it's a great grass to have, but it's only really viable in the northern states. Um, we haven't got that luxury down in Melbourne. So what most of the Melbourne tracks are based around uh, are cool-season grasses, which generally a blend of two. It's a bluegrass and also a ryegrass now. I guess the, the, the combination sort of makes up the... The profile, the bluegrass is a lower grass. You don't see a lot of it in the profile when you look at a grass, but it does the job of sort of probably what a carpet does. It sort of ties it all together. It's low down in the uh, in the profile of the, the, the swarter grass. It's low. It's got a blue tinge about it, hence the name. And it mm. sort of does the job of tying the grass in together and binding it together where the ryegrass in that combination, and generally it's about an 80% ryegrass mix and a 20% bluegrass mix, the ryegrass gives it that height and that nice green colour and that quick sort of growth that uh, you need sort of for recovery and that. So generally the combination works quite well together. Um, if you have one or the other, it, it presents a, um, you know, a, a set of problems. Um, so certainly it's been proved over years that that combination of bluegrass and ryegrass is probably the best combination that works in uh, Victorian climate. And, uh, you know, we have tried tried going with a kaikuyu um, in Melbourne but the problem with it is that you get very minimal or even no growth out of it um, from about or May through to about you know late August, early September so you know with tracks and clubs that have got a winter racing program it becomes uh, not very viable because obviously you need recovery and uh, growth during the winter months if you're racing on it. So just in terms of punters and a lot of the commentary you hear it's all about bias um, Basically, where one yep. lane of the track is is playing firmer than than others. Um, just yep. very basically, what causes bias? Um, is it purely just wear from the horses themselves, or are there other factors? Or? Yeah, initially, bias is caused by one area has uh, had more wear and tear on it than another, um, and then obviously we've got the movable rails to try and overcome that. So I think they've, they've been obviously they've been in now 30 years plus movable rails, and you hear their comment every now and again, oh, you should just leave the rail in the true and jockeys will sort it out. I think that's a fairly basic view that uh, I think you know wouldn't take wouldn't take long for that to come unstuck. I mean the movable rails pushed out in in, uh, in, in you know three or four metre increments to cover worn area so you give yourself as even a playing field as you can. So but basically yeah, the wear is the major the, is the major issue that causes track bias, but also the management of that wear. So what our job as a race course manager is it's to produce a fair a fair and even playing field. So one tool we've got is obviously the movable rail, but that doesn't do do the job completely because obviously horses you know, in a straight, they might cover 10 metres of width where you might move your rail out three metres. So, there's a, you know, there's a six or seven metre area that's had somewhere on it. Outside, that's had nowhere. So, it's just one of the tools that we use to get a track evenly. But, you know, watering is often done unevenly uh, across the track to sort of try and bring things back to square. Um, you know, rolling's another one. Aeration's another one. Um, cutting your grass at different, different lengths is another tool that we use to try and square things up because what actually happens, Mark, after meeting uh, the inside is quite um, of a lesser quality uh, than the outside, obviously, because of the use. So if you mm. treat it all the same, it'll it'll stay uneven for a, a longer period of time. So that, that used section, you treat it differently and try and get it up to speed and back to sort of that sort of 9,500% uh, sort of 
um, what it's capable of quite quickly, which evens it up again. So people think that managing a track, you, you treat it all evenly. Well, you do initially, like if you had a break in racing, but in between meetings, you you treat the track quite differently, trying to get it get it square again. So, um, you know, there's several tools that we use, and yeah, certainly rails is one, but all the all the management practices, you know, probably more important than the actual uh, than, the, than the movable rail. So you talk about that management is basically the goal of that to get the entire width of the track playing the same. So your worn areas playing the same as what your get your fresher areas are. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, worn areas doesn't always mean inferior ground. Like you, if you race over summer, and we we face this uh, uh, conundrum, I guess, over Caulfield Cup week when we race in the true position on Caulfield Guineas Day. We generally leave it there for the thousand Guineas Day. Now, what actually happens? We have ten races on Caulfield Guineas Day, probably 130 runners, and they generally stick inside that five or six metre area if the trace if the track's racing. Um, well, which it sort of usually does. So on the Wednesday, we're presented with a track. We've left the rail in the true position. We've had 130 or 40 horses on the inside, five or six metres. People think, oh, it's automatically that's going to be the worst group to get off the fence. But what uh, that time of year is that an area that has more wear and tear on it will actually dry out quicker than a really well-grassed area. And I guess a good analogy is what like insulation, like grass on your track acts as an insulation for the moisture underneath. So the more grass on it, the more moisture it'll hold because the sun's not getting to it. So you have an area on the Wednesday uh, Thousand Guineas Day where it's quite warm, that inside section, but it will actually be, if the weather's sort of on the warm side, that it will actually be significantly firmer than the well-grassed area out wide, which obviously looks better and People, some, a lot of the times it, it, it works in reverse of what people think, and that's why you know we generally get them racing truly on that thousand guineas day because although the track looks fairly ordinary, it's beaten around and that it actually races a little bit firmer than where the, where there's a lot of grass out wide. So um, but sometimes people think worn ground that's inferior. Let's get off it, but uh, you know in the, if the weather situation's right and there's enough sun and drying conditions around, it actually works in the opposite. Yeah, so so if you're presented with that sort of situation where you, your worn ground is firmer on the inside, um, how do yeah. you then just I guess basically how do you how do you how would you manage that? In that in that particular instance, um, mm. it's our our preferred outcome on that Wednesday is for that inside to be at, at least as good as out as out wide because what we don't want on the Wednesday is for horses to get out onto that Caulfield Cup line because obviously three days later. We've got our biggest day of the year, so um, you know by leaving the rail there and the weather conditions are in our favour, um, you know we just we water it all evenly. So yep. uh, if we have to water it, that is. So that, that ground will be at least at the equal of what's uh, further out, because as mm. I say, the last thing we want is getting getting off the fence on that Wednesday. But you know that's probably the exception. Generally, if we had an area that we thought was going to be faster than the rest of it. Um, you know, there's, there's some very mild aeration techniques. There's a, a machine called a knife or a slicer, which is very unintrusive and it just goes round and it gives it a very light aeration. Um, and you can race directly over the top of it. And it might just add two or three percent of give into it, um, into the ground, but sometimes that's enough just to take that edge off it and, and, and square it up a bit. And I think, you know, some well, well publicised cases recently. It's, you know, it may have been a tool that could have been considered in that, in that, in that sort of area. It's just 
not enough to sort of turn a ground from being, you know, uh, not, 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 not a rating. It's probably about a quarter of a rating or maybe a half a rating that will affect it. But sometimes mm. a very mild sort of tool like that is, is good in that circumstance. Mm. Yeah, right. So, so the goal is, is is always to get it as even as possible right across the right across the, the track. Yeah, absolutely. Fair, fair say. We've got you know, two, two words that we work to is a fair a fair playing field and a safe playing field. And uh, obviously, the safe ones are number one. But certainly, yeah, the, everything, everything is channeled in towards getting getting a fair playing field. Um, you know, and, and we achieve that by you know number of different ways we can do it. Obviously, depending on the time of year, it's got a big impact on it too. And also, our rail movement. Uh, um, sometimes people look at rail moves in isolation, and I've been on the end of it at Caulfield. Why in this particular day have you got your rail out nine or six or, or that? But obviously, rail moves affect going um, and bias also. But we've also got to look what our racing program is ahead. Not it's not just about the meeting on the Saturday. It's like you know, court leading to Caulfield coming. We've got five meetings in four weeks. So uh, realistically, you can't race them all in the true and the three. A couple of them have got to be out wide. Uh, so you know that, that obviously programming that. Uh, you know, is important as well, and the, I guess the stick in that is also that Caulfield Cup's our biggest day of the year, and it's generally the, the second last or the third last race on the last day, so it's pretty much the last thing you do on that track, but it's got to be when the most focus is on it, so a lot of work and preparation and programming goes into sort of having, uh, you know, the track as good as it can possibly be on that, you know, five o'clock on the last day of your carnival. Also, just another one that we've heard a bit of commentary on recently, maybe over the last few months, is that some of the tracks in Victoria and some of the metro tracks are actually too firm. Um, yep. You know, the yep. few trainers and that's saying that sort of thing. You, you've been in it for quite a while now. Um, have they gotten firmer over years or decades? Or uh, g- Generally, I would say, uh, no, I'd say it's the other way. I know, I know when I started that, you know, the ratings were, were fast tracks and you watch replays of sort of the early 90s and that, you know, horses, you know, there's actually dust coming up behind, behind the field and the grass was cut a lot shorter. Um, and even now, a lot of track records are still held by horses in that era because tracks were that hard and that fast that now that we put more cushion into them, that they just physically can't run run, run, run that time. That's, that's why there's a few track records still about that go back to that era, but... Now, I think generally they have softened up, uh, probably not as much as some would like. Um, you know, there's always a constant push for more give-in tracks over winter, uh, over summer. But um, I think what we've got to be really careful of as an industry is I think if we prepare these tracks just to fr- with a fraction too much given them, yes, it pleases people on the day, but it, it really throws into chaos what I talking planning where you're going to race next meeting and, um, you know, if you're racing in the true on a particular day and it's genuinely, a, um, you know, a, in the older dead-rated track or a four-rated track now, that the nature of that track is that they'll chop it out and they'll just start to get off it at the end of the day. So they do that. Then they're getting into the rail move where you want to be next next meeting and it sort of mm. it can have a real snowball effect. And I know Dean Lester used to refer to it as the dead force syndrome where... Um, you know, horses for half a program on a genuine dead track, um, which has got, you know, a reasonable amount of give in it, the fence just gives out because it's a natural, um, natural product. It's, it's wearable. It's, so it naturally gives out after X amount of horses have been on it if, if you have that too much give in them and that, 
whole dead four effect just snowballs to that meeting to the next meeting and you can really sort of get yourself into some trouble but yeah. I guess getting back to the point there is, a, there is a really fine line between the perfect surface and a fraction too firm and a fraction too much given it's a really tight window that I guess people want us to achieve and you know we're dealing with 80 square 80,000 square metres of grass you know natural environment it's, it's nearly impossible to do it the whole time and I've been mm. caught and everyone has been caught where at different times yes you do it they are a bit firm or yes they have got a bit much uh, given them but I think generally I think the four metro tracks in Melbourne do a phenomenal job with getting it right and we're all going to get one you know maybe one wrong a year but I think out of the meetings we have it's I think you know out of 100 metro meetings in town a year I can probably 95 of them are run on really good surfaces and just on, you're saying what a huge surface area a racetrack is, obviously. On track ratings, um, how useful are track ratings? And can you give an entire racetrack, um, you know, the single rating that we see on the morning of a, a meeting? Yeah, well, so I, th- I think you can, yeah. It's, uh, again, a rating is a subjective view. We've got a lot of instruments that we use for, for, to help us to come up with that, but um, it is a subjective view in the end. And, and you're right, tracks do vary slightly. Some some uh, vary sort of I guess significantly, but certainly again I think all metro tracks there is some slight variation um, between you know around at the 1600 metre mark or at the 300 metre mark, and again that purely comes down to the wear that's been on the track. Um, I know certainly uh, you know once your rails out and you and, and you're treating your track and prepping it for a meeting, you do the same at the um, you know all all the way around. Uh, generally um, a, a constant the preparation um, I guess what changes a little bit of Caulfield we've got a couple of areas where up the side the Queens Avenue side it picks up a lot of the north wind it runs north south so when there's a really dry sort of period and the north wind's going that can dry out a little bit the section about over 1200 what we call on top of the hill again yep. being slightly higher I think it's three or four metres higher than the rest of the track that gets a little bit more wind, so a couple of little areas, and all tracks have got the little, little idiosyncrasies that do dry out a little quicker. Quicker, um, yeah. So I guess the entire circumference is not exactly the same, but generally they fall within that same sort of rating range. Um, having said that, there's been times at Corfield, not for a few years now, where generally when they're very wet, um, we've called a, an, a section. I think it might have been Desperados. Caulfield Cup, which is getting back a little bit now, where the section of the 1600, which was a heavy 10, but the rest of the track was a heavy 9, so I think we have got the ability to uh, split up the circuit if it requires, um, and again, I think the stewards have got no problems if they think we've made a wrong call or we haven't sort of rated or there's an area that they think is there's a bigger vari- big enough variation in to warrant a, uh, you know, a, a double rating, that they're happy enough to do it, but... Uh, Again, I think out of the metro, the metro boys, I think you know, mate, ninety-nine percent of them are pretty good. Yeah, yeah, and it, just on those, you're saying you've got a few extra tools that you use, and I saw last week that you're actually coming up on launching a, a new online tool for Caulfield, which basically using a, a whole lot of different technology gives gives punters and the publics a, a live feed of exactly what the track's doing and what conditions are doing. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's a new uh, new program that we've probably been in developing for the last 
18 months with a, with a, a company called Spectre Tech Technology. Um, we've labelled it uh, TMI, Track Management Intelligence. And basically what it does, it collates all the real-time information. So we'll put a track rating out in the morning and then um, we're not far off being able to launch an app where punters can track uh, all the, the real-time weather information for that day with 15-minute updates. So obviously mm-hmm. temperature comes into that wind speed and wind direction, which is the big one at Caulfield, and I know Flemington have got the same thing when the, when the wind's a particular way, it sort of advantages the inside of the outside, so we get um, wind direction and also the constant wind, but also what it's gusting up to at different times of the day. Um, uh, we've also got in that, we've got about 60 soil moisture sensors underneath the grass around the track, so we get real-time uh, soil moisture readings, and again, we'll we put out a figure at 6am in the morning when we rate the track and for argument's sake it might be 24.5% uh, soil moisture mm. and that's the reading that's updated every 15 minutes so as that dries out during the day that number will actually come down and um, I guess what it does, it, um, it puts a bit of data behind the emotive conversations that are sometimes held on race day about tracks drying out, you've heard the terms, it's like a concrete road or it's not quite good three, maybe another race. I mean, it's all subjective. It's all people's opinion. So I guess what we wanted to do is put some real science behind it so we can actually talk about data and facts rather than just opinions and uh, Mm. uh, emotions some of the time. So, And it's been terrific. It's uh, certainly helped as a management tool, but I think the big asset will be is, uh, you know, stakeholders will be able to, you know, access this, this info pretty quickly and obviously track uh, track and you know make their own opinions up yeah yeah and i guess just just finally um as you said it, it can be a very emotive topic on on race days and gets a hell of a lot of attention um is there anything you'd say to punters who are sometimes on a race day bombarded with a amount of opinions about how it's playing or uh yeah i would i mean i i, I un- fully concede that yeah different times there's track biases but i think a lot of the time track bias uh, becomes a, I guess a filler topic for media, like obviously after the first race, how's the track playing after the second race, is, the, is there a pattern yet, is a pattern change, asking jockeys and I think a lot of the time it's a lot more simpler than that, the tracks are good for you know, it, it's going to race evenly, some sort of slight pattern may emerge late in the day but I think for the first five or six races on the majority on the vast majority of meetings then things will play evenly and obviously we've had exceptions and probably had one obvious one recently but I think a lot's made of track bias and track patterns without the facts being there as far as results go on a day as say you hear them before the first you hear them after the first and pretty much right throughout the day you mm. hear the variations of different theories what people have got but I think a lot it's a lot simpler than that most of the time and it also looks like Perhaps in the, the coming months you've maybe got some more technology that'll actually give a, a really good reading for punters about exactly how each area of the track right across the width's playing. Um, did you want to tell us a bit about that too? Yeah, yeah that's right, Mark. We've got they've been doing some work again over the last 12 months um, with a company that have developed a instrument or an implement, it probably is. It's uh, Basically, it takes the going stick, which is our, uh, our, our reading, which we do on a race day morning, which gives a penetrant and also a shear of the grass, a, a shear strength. So the implement actually takes a going stick every metre. So it drives along the track, stops every 100 metres and does 
um, 10 going sticks of each, at metre increments. So from the true position all the way out to 10 metres and then at the end of the exercise you'll get 10 different uh, going stick readings all representing 1 metre off the rail, 2 metres off the rail, 3 metres off the rail, etc. So yep. punters will be armed with this information and obviously come up with their with their own conclusions. But certainly it'll uh, it'll take things to the next level about, you know, um, a particular lane being inferior or, or superior to others. So that's certainly something that we're uh, we're working towards, and hopefully we'll have a little bit more news on that. Uh, you know, possibly during the spring carnival. It won't be rolling out over the spring, but certainly we'll be uh, hope to be at a stage to sort of show the public a little bit more of it and uh, demonstrate the the tool in the in the coming months. Yeah. So that, as you say, that'll give a reading of basically every single lane right out across the track. Absolutely, yeah. You'll say you'll say one one metre off the the going sticks nine point eight four, two metres off it's nine point three one, all the way to ten metres out. So it's a little bit of information overload, but certainly I think it's a, a it's a useful tool that uh, you know the punters can use. And I think that with these going stick readings, you know nine point fours compared to a nine point threes. I mean there's there is a um, an insignificant difference sometimes. Like a nine point two is probably an insignificant difference to a 9.25 so um, mm. I guess that's what the pundits will sort of have to collate the data in and sort of come up with their own their own conclusions but certainly we are the aim is to have as much of this stuff out to the public and stakeholders as we can and what uh, what people make of it we'll leave, up, leave it up to them we'll just supply the info. Fantastic well, thanks for your time today Jason um, hopefully yeah uh, no worries yeah, mate. broken down a few uh, pretty complex issues for a lot of punters and We'll have another chat soon. Yeah, no, good to chat, Mark. Thank you. Cheers. So thanks, everybody, for listening to today's episode of the Winning Edge podcast. Hopefully you got something out of it. Uh, if so, you can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, and you won't miss an episode. And if you've got any questions at all, you'll find Winning Edge Investments on Twitter or Facebook, or you can head to winningedgeinvestments.com, and you can get in touch with us there. Uh, we've got a big team of professional punters and analysts who study the form and bet for a living. So head over to the website and see what they've got to offer or if you just want to get in touch for a chat about punting. So until next time, I'm Mark Haywood. Thanks for listening.